and turn with me this time to Psalm uh, 110. Psalm 110 is our text for this morning. As you're turning there, uh, we can note by way of introduction that this is what scholars and theologians call a royal psalm. And that is, it is about the king of Israel. It's intended to exalt his reign, to speak of his power, and to encourage the people of Israel regarding that king. However, it's also called a, a messianic psalm. Uh, that is, its, its subject is the coming Messiah, the, the Christ, okay, the Savior of Israel. And so in that way, a, a messianic psalm is explicitly intended to be prophetic, to, to be something that foretells the truth about what is to come. And in the previous weeks, we've already seen the author of Hebrews in our study of that book reference this passage uh, a number of times. He's referenced verse 1, and he's referenced verse 4. Uh, and in fact, this is the most quoted psalm, or most referenced psalm, in the New Testament. And I think as we read, you'll come to see uh, perhaps why that is. It summarizes quite well who our Savior is, who this Jesus is, and what kind of a Savior He is. And since we have the birth of Jesus um, the Savior and King, especially on our minds this morning, uh, given the time of year. Uh, it's good for us to press in and to see what the Scripture says about Him in this capacity as our King and as our priest. Uh, so with those things in mind, I invite you to look there at verse 1 of Psalm 110, and let's read the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn forever. Or the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now humbled before this text. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would increase in us wisdom by your spirit to receive the things that are written here. Lord, for our hearts to be strengthened by them and for glory to your name to, to proceed forth from our lives, from our actions, and from our intentions, Lord as we are conformed and transformed uh, in the renewing of our minds from the holy words of your scripture. Let us see Christ today and let him be exalted among us through your word going forth at this time. And we pray this all for his sake and in his name. Amen. Well, some parts of this psalm, as you have 
read there along with me, uh, you'll notice are quite straightforward. Uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We can understand that sort of language. It gives us a, a good picture right, for our minds to imagine a throne and one being seated on that throne and obviously enemies being put beneath your feet. Uh, speaks a word about subjection, about rule, about uh, a reign that is effective and powerful. Yet other parts of this psalm, we can admit, um, have some unique language employed that might need a little more study in order for us to kind of understand what's trying to be communicated. But one of the wonderful blessings we have with this text in particular is that Jesus himself gave us the basic interpretation during his earthly ministry. Uh, You might remember where he quoted this in Matthew chapter 22. And I I want to read that passage to you uh, right here at the beginning to kind of set our time together, set the direction of it. In Matthew 22 and verses 41 through 46, uh, Jesus has another encounter with the Pharisees. And we read there, it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ, or that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now what Jesus did there, first let's let's give the Pharisees credit where they had something right. They were right in saying that the Messiah was to be the son of David. So Jesus is not critiquing them on that. What he's doing is exposing the inconsistencies in their thinking. Because at the same time, they suppose that the Messiah would still in some sense be lesser than David, or at most equal to him. And so they were expecting an earthly, political, military sort of deliverer, right? One who would drive out their enemies, restore their uh, inhabitation of the promised land to what it was supposed to be, and they would live, you know, a peaceful, prosperous life thereafter. But what Jesus is showing them is that the scriptures themselves, the very ones that they agreed upon, and that, in fact, they interpreted in much the same way, those very scriptures testify from David's own mouth that he calls the Messiah Lord. You'll notice the title of this psalm is, or rather the introduction of it says, A Psalm of David. And what that means is it came from David's hand. And so Jesus confirms this interpretation that this is David speaking. The first Lord there in verse 1 is in all caps, most likely in your versions. That means it's the word Yahweh, right? So Yahweh says to my Lord. That's David saying, that Yahweh is speaking to someone who is David's Lord, this Messiah who rules over him. Now, some interpreters throughout the ages have tried to suppose that this is actually written by the hand of someone in David's court 
exalting David and exalting his position. But as we just saw, the title of the psalm doesn't allow for that, and Jesus' own interpretation doesn't allow for that. Jesus points out this was clearly written by David's hand. And the reason then that this David, who absolutely is the, the typical king of Israel, meaning he's the, he is the, the model, the one who certainly sets the stage for what is to come later to be fulfilled, even though that's true, David understood something of his status and of his setting. He understood that he was not the end-all, be-all, but that there was someone greater who would come after him. This was promised in 2 Samuel 7, where uh, an eternal throne was promised to his offspring. And an eternal throne is not earthly-type language that speaks of divine blessing coming down from heaven. So David, understanding this, That's how David calls this one who is to come Lord, because he's greater than David. He's greater than any human king, because he is, after all, God. So the essence of our psalm today, then, is that it speaks of a divine king who will rule God's people forever, while also successfully serving as their great high priest forever. In the New Testament, we find that this great priest king is Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified for sinners, taken up in glory, and now seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. So this morning, we're going to simply work through the the four or so sections of this psalm that speak of Christ's rule and Christ's priesthood. The psalm actually contains two oracles or declarations of God. The first is here in verse 1, where the Lord says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. The second one comes in verse 4, where it says the Lord, again Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first decree or declaration or oracle, it concerns the rule of this divine king. What sort of a kingdom he's going to have, what that power is going to look like. As we've already said, he must be divine because David calls him Lord. But there is also a a serious completeness, you might say, to his coming reign in that God will make his enemies a footstool beneath his feet that shows its effectiveness. And in short, This was a decree of Christ's rule that it would surely happen and that it would surely be made complete. Now, I know we've referenced this many times, but I'll revert you back to chapter 1 of Hebrews, where it tells us Jesus, after making purification of sins, was seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the precise event that is in mind in this psalm. That's where we see it fulfilled ultimately. Now, to sit at the right hand of a king, as we mentioned, is certainly a high place of honor. And really what it indicates is to share in his rule. And so that's what's being communicated here. But if you think about that, who, um, who is fit for these things, to use the words of the scriptures? Certainly no man or no mere man would be fit to sit at the right hand of God to share in his rule. 
we can certainly say it is only fit for one who is divine. And throughout the ages, commentators have picked up on that in this passage to say, to share in God's rule, to sit at his right hand, this must be a divine king, which obviously means this is not talking about the throne in Israel in an earthly geographical type of reign. And in fact, that's the same point that Matt, that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 22, that this isn't an, an exalted, exaggerated prophecy about David, but rather this is a real prophecy about what the office of king represents. Now, just as a matter of helping us to interpret this, Remember that Jesus said in John 5, 39, he said to some of his detractors, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but it is they that testify to me. There's other passages like that where Jesus is communicating clearly that everything written in these scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, speaks of him. All of it teaches us about him in some way, shape, or or form. And so when you come to any text, particularly Old Testament prophecy of any sort, you have two general options uh, for where that text will fall. Either A, it's speaking uh, about earthly matters only, uh, simply as, a, as an example for God's people to teach about heavenly realities, or it's speaking directly of those heavenly realities. And so the question we must ask of this text then is, How is this speaking about Jesus? Well, Jesus has already told us. It's speaking of him directly, who he is, what sort of reign he shall have. Now notice then what this decree is saying about Christ. We've already mentioned it quite clearly, simply that he will rule with complete dominance and control. Now to our ears, that may sound a little bit abrasive, you know, it might sound a little bit harsh even to say, well, it's just about power and authority and all of this. Where, where does that fit into this mercy and grace stuff I've been talking about? But we have to understand that the thrust is not to be abrasive. The thrust is to indicate to us his right to power and his right to authority and his right to rule. He's not a harsh king. He is not a harsh ruler. But nevertheless, his power is absolute. The scriptures seek to indicate that to us clearly. And by this decree going forth that the Christ would be seated at the right hand of the Father, it's simply God ensuring with with a stamp of promise the rule of this king. He decreed it. The one who sits enthroned above the heavens, who declared the beginning from the end, he's the one who declares this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will rule and his enemies will be made a footstool beneath his feet. A complete, perfect kingdom. Clearly that's much different than any earthly king that we can conceive of. But we may wonder, you know, when did this take place? What's the setting of this apparent statement, sit at my right hand? Well, again, I refer back to, as Isaiah tells us, the Lord declaring the end from the beginning. God's decrees are eternal, right? They happened in eternity past uh, amongst the, the Trinity himself. But nevertheless, 
these decrees are, are worked out in real time. All right? So in real time, this fulfillment was initiated when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then we find out elsewhere in the New Testament that this reign must go on. It's presently happening and must go on until it is completed, which, of course, is the day when our Lord will return uh, in judgment once and for all. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, maybe asking, all right, this is wonderful and great. It sounds great, but what does it mean for us? What's the, the practical implications? We should always ask that. Not simply, how does it help me, but, but what is my response? What is the Lord calling me to with this? This is profitable for preaching, for teaching, for rebuking, and training in righteousness. How am I to employ what is being taught to me here? Well, uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, offers a, a wonderful insight here, uh, simply stating this from this text. He says, what this shows us is it is not up to us whether Jesus will be Lord. Jesus is Lord, and God has made him such. We can fight that lordship and be broken by it. The verse says that Christ's enemies will be made a footstool beneath his feet, or we can submit to it in humble obedience with praise. What Boyce is saying is what this text does is lays out two possibilities for us. Basically, rebel against the king and fight his lordship or submit to it in obedience and praise him. But regardless of us, Jesus reigns. He is the Lord. Now, we're going to see shortly that great blessing comes to those who do submit in humble obedience. But notice just for now how this kind of turns the table on our culture's thinking and demands. Because what secular man does, what sinful man does, and this has been from the garden forth, ever since the fall of man, is he makes himself king. He makes himself judge and arbiter of good and evil. He decides what is right in his own eyes. And the issue is that many evangelicals tend to submit to that way of thinking in presenting Christ. And especially at this time of year, the tendency is to go with the, the Jesus in the manger apologetic, we may call it. What I mean is we, we present Jesus as this sweet, harmless baby who supposedly just wants to be loved, right, and adored. He doesn't call us to anything radical. He doesn't require of us faith and accompanying obedience thereafter. He doesn't call us to deny ourselves, but he simply exists to make us feel good. But in reality, that is not what we see in the Bible. Yes, he came in humility. He was born of a virgin there in Bethlehem. He died on the cross to pay our debt, and he was raised in glory, but he was raised in glory to rule his people and his enemies. To paraphrase Boyce once again, he says, Jesus is not in the manger, nor is Jesus on the cross, but Jesus is on the throne. That is what supports and encourages our gospel even now, is that Jesus is on the throne. 
the throne. Now the good news is that in this kingship of Christ, he has chosen to take some from being enemies and to make them into his friends, his brothers, his children, and bring them into all of the blessings of his rule. Which brings us to the next part of the passage, verses 2 and 3. Having saw the decree of Christ's rule, now it gets into the expansion of Christ's rule. Now I said a moment ago we'd get into the blessing that comes to those who submit to Christ's rule, and, and these couple of verses here really open it up to us. They speak of his rule going forth, and, and the picture is once again that it's real and it is effective, and it shows us that Christ's rule will not be denied. Just as Jesus said, the gates of hell, hell will not prevail against his church, nor will any earthly power or otherwise come against the building of his kingdom. But also it shows us that his grace is such that people will freely offer themselves to serve in submission to his power. Now we can again see the language here, this mighty scepter going forth. A scepter is an, is an emblem, a symbol of kingship, of rule, of power. And so it's saying it goes forth, it extends out of Zion, which that's another name for Jerusalem, the, the city of God. And so it starts there in the religious center of Israel, in the midst of God's people, but it goes forth from there. It extends even into foreign lands. Now we, again, having the benefit of the hindsight from the New Testament, we realize you know, that this comes cumulatively in the death and resurrection of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, and its advanced the building of the church. But we want to be warned or guarded against the tendency to sometimes over-spiritualize certain texts. I want to explain what I mean by that. First, we certainly believe that Christ's present reign is spiritual in the sense that he's not on this earth. It's not a worldly kingdom fought and earned in worldly ways, but rather he is in heaven. It is in that sense a spiritual reign. But the second thing we also believe is that that reign is not consigned to heaven. In other words, it's not limited to the spiritual realm without having any sort of manifestation here in this world, right? Jesus came to earth, and he came to establish his church, to build his kingdom, to send it forth. And the case of point on this is that people don't offer themselves in heaven, but on earth. Christ is received in the gospel in this life not in the next. So that means for us then that there is some sense in which Christ will rule in the midst of his enemies even now. Now in getting into this, you can go way further and get into all sorts of eschatology and different views on that. Uh, and I don't think that would be beneficial for our time today. Uh, you can go different ways with this, but no matter which way we go, we have to understand that Christ's rule and reign uh, means something now, right? That's one of the very things that gives us the encouragement, the boldness to live for Christ, to believe that we're not fighting a losing battle, as it were, that you know our witness for the gospel means nothing. No, even if it should cost us our lives, we believe what the text says. It goes forth. It will be effective, and ultimately, 
no matter what it should cost us in this life, we will be raised victorious with Christ. He will have the final victory over all of his enemies. Now, just as maybe a side note, if you've ever wondered, and sometimes we kind of gloss over this question, but if you ever step back and simply ask, you know, how is it that we primarily, I think, maybe exclusively non-Jewish people by, by heritage, how did we come to share in all these wonderful promises? How did the gospel come to benefit us? Well, the answer is actually found even in this very text. And that was the plan from the beginning. All right? It's the scepter, the rule of Christ going forth into the midst of his enemies. You remember that the whole story of the Old Testament um, at least the story of Israel as a people, it begins with them being brought out of a land where they were in slavery to a land where they are to bring uh, dominion to the land, to drive out the inhabitants, to have rule and power and authority. Now, in all of that, the picture was to drive out the people, but that's not the typical representation of kingdom expansion. In fact, by and large, the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, deals with kingdom establishment, not expansion. And that's why it's not Exodus in the later books that are the foundation of this passage, but rather Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham. There's where we find this language where he said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The point is, as a kingdom expands, it comes into contact with other people. It brings them into subjection, yes, but in that way it's implied here that the Gentiles will be made a part of God's kingdom. Notice there. The Lord sends forth from Zion your scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, that is, as it expands into foreign lands. But then we read, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. What's that? What that's saying is that as this kingdom expands, it's not going to be one Again, it happens in an earthly way where people are forced into conscription, forced against their will, as it were, to serve in this kingdom for the benefit of the king because they are not powerful enough to resist it. Rather, it's this idea that as this king kingdom goes forth, the people of this king will flock with eagerness to serve in his army, as it were. Again, while Christ's kingdom is not built by worldly means, it's certainly being built. The church father Augustine points out that while we don't yet see Christ visibly seated on his throne, we do certainly see his present rule, which testifies to him being seated on the throne. And for that reason, he actually sees a, a clear link from this passage to Psalm 2, 
where in that passage it says in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And speaking again of the Messiah in verse 8, the Lord says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Again, how is that happening? It's happening by what we are told here in verse 3. Now, here's where we run into some of the more unique language, maybe a little bit more difficult to understand. But these two sort of phrases that are a little bit obscure, one, from the womb of the morning, it it carries the idea of Christ bringing forth followers, right, from the very beginning. And the dew of your youth, again, a bit obscure, but it denotes plenty. It denotes vigor. You know, dew, of course, is that which falls upon the ground, and it's really innumerable because it's everywhere. It falls upon everything that is exposed. But also it provides um, help. It provides sustenance to the plants. And so dew uh, in Old Testament literature is kind of a, a, a metaphor, a symbol for youthful vigor and, and, and energy and, and power, that sort of thing. And so the point is simply this, that such will be the Lord's church. They will come forth. They will offer themselves willingly. And they will be enclosed in the garments of His righteousness, clothed in holy garments from the womb of the morning. This is, in the Old Testament, what we would simply call irresistible grace. But I want you to think about what that means for you and and for me. If Christ's present reign is only spiritual, that is consigned to heaven, as we we mentioned, then that kind of lets us off the hook on a lot of stuff, right? But if not, then every bit of it matters to every bit of our life. It has implications for every bit of our life. If, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ is presently reigning, then that means our lives ought to reflect the present reign of Christ. Even think about perhaps the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus instructed us to pray to God, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming of that kingdom takes place on this earth. It's As some have put it, heaven invading earth, which is a little bit unique language, but it does convey a good picture. And we're reminded of why Jesus instructed us to pray that way. It's not a prayer for a future time, right? As in the return of the Lord, when we pray, your kingdom come. But it's a prayer for now. God sent his son. God brings about the spread of the gospel. God brings about the expansion of his kingdom which is why Jesus gave the many examples of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 13, 33, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What's the picture there? It's something that is minute, seemingly insignificant, even unobservable to the naked eye, but it's put within something. That is the church within the world, and over time, it expands until it affects the entire lump. And that is, I would argue, the impetus even behind the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples. Remember how he encouraged his disciples to do that? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go. 
What's he appealing to? His present rule and reign as the encouragement that the gospel will go forth and the gospel will be effective. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we expect eventually it to take such an effect that everything's perfect, everything's golden, no more sin, no more anything. That only happens when Christ returns. But we do expect the gospel to take effect and to bear fruit. And that encourages us then to go forth. Which brings us then to the second decree, which is of a more unusual sort than the first, uh, which was the decree of Christ's rule. Now we come to the decree of Christ's priesthood. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's very much we could say here, but the short of it is that this passage indicates to us a, a monumental joining of the office of king and the office of priest. And the promise is that Christ will ultimately and completely be effective as God's people's ruler and as God's people's mediator. Now, why it's monumental is because according to the Old Testament law, it was unlawful to blend those two offices. A, a Levitical priest was not to be a king. A king was not to be a priest. Those were separated for God's reasons, for God's purposes. And number 16 points this out clearly. It says there that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles 26, we see King Uzziah actually punished for coming and seeking to offer incense in the temple. It was not his place as king. These were to be separated. And so what that tells us then, and what is confirmed by Psalm 110 verse 4, is that this priesthood that Jesus has decreed to, to hold is a new kind of priesthood. A new priesthood must be established. And if a new priesthood is established, that would render the old obsolete. Now the author of Hebrews makes this very point quite well and his point that he makes there that we'll get to in the coming weeks is that the Levitical priests offered their sacrifices over and over and over. Why? Because none of them were truly effective. None of them could actually completely atone for sin. Therefore they had to be uh, repeatedly offered time and time again. But Melchizedek is an example of an eternal priesthood. He's a not of the tribe of Levi, or he's not even a descendant of Aaron or the Levites, but rather he's a different kind of man. He shows up in Genesis 14. After Abraham has had success in battle, he comes back from it. Melchizedek, this mysterious priest of Salem, comes out and blesses Abraham. Abraham offers a, a tenth of all the spoils to him. And that's really all we're told, aside from the fact that Melchizedek means king of righteousness and that he is the priest of Salem. Now, what that is, is he becomes an example. We don't see a beginning. We don't see an end. What we see is an eternal priest. And God says the decree toward Christ is that he will be a priest after that order. One without beginning, one without end. 
And when one is appointed to an eternal priesthood, that must mean that his work of being a priest, his mediation on behalf of God's people must be effective. Because a priest serves on behalf of men. To get kind of to the significance of this, uh, during the Reformation, there was also what what is called a counter-reformation. That happened within the Roman Catholic Church. That's what produced the Council of Trent and all of that. And one of the Roman Catholic theologians, his name was Robert Bellarmine, and he was asked what the greatest Protestant heresy was. Some might say that you know, sola scriptura might, some would probably say, oh, it's um, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But instead, what this Catholic, Roman Catholic theologian responded was assurance. He said assurance is the greatest Protestant heresy. Why did he say that? Well, it's because Roman Catholic theology teaches a works-based, synergistic view of salvation. Thus, Whenever we consider salvation, there's always an element in which it depends upon man. And you all know by your own experience, our man's our undependability, right? So there's always a possibility that it's not going to take. It's not going to stick. And therefore, under Roman Catholic theology, true assurance is impossible. But the Bible teaches that there is one mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus and that God has sworn him to be a priest forever. Again, why? Because he successfully fills that office. He mediates for his people. He atones for their sin. He secures their forgiveness. He does it. Thus, his people may have perfect assurance because it depends upon him, not upon us. And so the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What that means then is the one who rules over us is also the one who intercedes for us. And so when we come and offer ourselves to him freely, submit to his righteous rule and reign and receive the grace that he's extended to us by trusting in his perfect sacrifice on our behalf, we can have confident assurance that our souls are safe, our eternity is secure because of his work. Which leads us then to the final point in these concluding verses, which put forth the victory of Christ as this priest king. Now here we find in verse 5 an interesting switch. Now it's Yahweh who is at the king's right hand. You see there, the Lord is at your right hand, speaking of this Messiah. And this simply is intended to indicate the, God's full support and provision for the work of his king. And what we find in these verses, owing to the work of, uh, of God, is the victory of this Christ, the priest king. Now again, here's where we see this priesthood and kingship linked together. Uh, because if you read again the Old Testament law, what earthly priest could be said to sit at God's right hand? Well, none. And what earthly priest um, you know, could be said to have God at his right hand? Again, the answer would be none, yet that is true of Christ our Lord and our Savior. He is always in God's presence, and God is always his help. And so that means that we who have been brought to faith, we can trust that we have him as our Lord and Savior, as our help 
and that we enjoy the eternal mediation of Jesus to the Father on our behalf. And part of the reason for that is because he has us with him. That's another part of the significance of him being seated at the right hand. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2 what we're told about sharing in Christ's rule. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That can be kind of odd to think about because it's like, well, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we've been raised up and seated. What's that getting at? Well, it's that... That's the reason the Bible uses the language of Christians being in Christ, found in him, clothed in his righteousness. He takes us to himself, and where he goes, we go, truly, meaning that eternally we share in his rule and reign. We share in the benefits and blessing of being seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. Which is why we read in Revelation 3 and verse 21 says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, certainly, the more negative aspects that we read in these verses, and negative towards those who rebel against God, those things are serious. Shattering of kings, executing of judgment, the day of his wrath. We could also say that those seem to be more future-oriented than the present rule described. But in accordance with, again, something Augustine observed, this is meant to be a word of warning to the proud, but a word of encouragement to the humble. Why? Because even as we talk about Christ's rule, his power, his authority, we must remember that when God came to Moses and described himself, in terms that Moses could understand, the first thing he said was, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's who the Lord is to his people. The judgment only comes to those who reject him, who rebel against him. And so the encouragement is not to be um, rendered anxious about this or worried about your soul, if indeed you are resting in Christ, but rather to trust in him and rest in the grace and mercy that he extends to his people. In the final verse there, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's the imagery of one being refreshed after battle, one being given the provision they need to be restored. Ultimately, it's language of victory, lifting up the head. It's telling us that all of these things we've examined, everything that we've spoken of about this rule, reign, and priesthood will ultimately come to pass. He will be victorious, after, as we've said. But again, we put forth that disclaimer that this isn't prosperity gospel. This doesn't promise that coming to Christ means things will be easy and, and gentle and comfortable in this life. Not in the least. Rather, the encouragement is that in Christ, you've been made a part of something that cannot be shaken. Something that ultimately cannot be torn down. 
And so when this mist of a life passes you by and you come to the time that really matters, that means you will be numbered with the victors. Indeed, you have trusted in Christ and received him as he's offered in the gospel. You will not be tread underfoot of the king, but you will come to share in his reign. That's the grace that Jesus extends to us. That's what he has secured for his people. Obviously, then, this is not a cause for prideful boasting, but rather is a cause for humble, joyful faith in Christ. So I hope, then, that as you meditate on these things, even given the, the special time of Christmas, we remember that it was a king who was born to Mary there in Bethlehem. And that this king is now seated on the throne. We now serve him. And so we can go forth with confidence, with assurance, the great Protestant heresy, as the Roman Catholic theologian put it. And we can proclaim that to the world and we can expect it to bear fruit because Jesus promised that he will build his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word as always, having been built up by it, having been convicted by it, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us with it. Help us to cling to the humble, ordinary means of grace, trusting that these are your appointed means to build your church, to do your work, to accomplish um, all that you have purposed to do. And we see uh, the guarantee of all of this promise secured in Christ Jesus as you have raised him from the dead. Pray, Lord, that you would build up and encourage every heart in this place this day. Uh, and this coming week and into the new year, uh, may your blessing be on us all and may your grace give us that which we need for faithfulness to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to stand uh, with your hymnals, if you would, and uh, turn to Psalm 2.